Oh, you're on. Blimey. No, 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 come on, come on, definitely. It's terrifying. No, have a seat. <laughs> I was going to call you on. Yeah? So they're not going to do what they're told, which is great, actually. That's what we want. Um, welcome back to this session on medicine. Alan Keller here, Iona Heath, and Rob George. Um, they're going to give us brief presentations each from wherever they want to give those presentations, and then we're going to bring you in. Um, so if we may start with Rob, is the microphone ready for that? Get Iona to or Iona? first. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Thank you. I'm the only one who knows what they're going to say. The rest, <laughs> the rest are going to make it up as they go along. Yeah. Um, I've got a new game, and my game... It's like Desert Island Discs, and it involves choosing which dead writers I would like to resurrect so that Sam could invite them to Medicine Unboxed and orchestrate one of his always amazing conversations. Now, it's, it's obviously extremely hard to choose, but for the theme of medicine and morality, I choose... Okay, I choose... Why isn't this working? Can we switch slides and Help. just check with pointer? Thanks. Where am I supposed to point it? At them? Fine, if we just switch to the next slide and we'll check the pointer. Thank you. I choose the American novelist John Williams on the left and Michel de Montaigne on the right. <clears throat> and I apologise for the lamentable lack of gender or any other sort of balance. Um, but I want, to I want Sam to invite both these remarkable writers because I think that they would have very interesting responses to bioethicist Dan Callahan's description of the difficult child of medical progress. The 1% the of patients who consume some 21% of healthcare costs, usually succumbing gradually from multi-organ failure, illustrate the progress problem. Fifty years ago, they would have died faster and in many cases with less suffering. We have traded off shorter lives and faster deaths for just the opposite, longer lives and slower deaths. In his beautiful novel Stoner, John Williams describes... Yikes. The slow, quiet attrition of time against imperfect flesh. And the unflinching truth of this surely gives the lie to the contemporary medicine's relentless pursuit of technical solutions to the existential problems posed by distress, suffering, and the finitude of life, and the inevitability of ageing, loss, and death. Sickness and death have gradually come to be regarded as failures of medicine, even by doctors themselves, rather than inevitable constituents of what it is to be human. We have somehow forgotten that life without death would be intolerable. Yet everyone, to a greater or lesser extent, is afraid of dying, and too often we try to protect ourselves by putting as much distance as possible between the healthy and the dead and the dying. And yet all of us, particularly the doctors, are surrounded by the dead. But by the time I had worked as a general practitioner in Kentish Town for more than 30 years, it was populated by generations of ghosts waiting in half-remembered interiors alongside the changed rooms and the new inhabitants. 
the total population of the living and the dead had become denser and denser. We don't forget the dead, it's just that we have forgotten how to talk about them. Yet as the American poet Marianne Moore observed, omissions are not accidents. Similarly, we as doctors omit to discuss issues of futility with our patients <coughs> because we find it so difficult. The eponymous William Stoner of John Williams' novel undergoes a radiotherapy treatment that he knows to be futile. Stoner had allowed himself to be poked and prodded, had let them strap him on a table, and had remained still while a huge machine hovered silently about him. It was foolishness, he knew, but he did not protest. It would have been unkind to do so. It was little enough to undergo if it would distract them all from the knowledge they could not evade. Do we have any idea of how many of our patients agree to treatments because they do not want to be unkind to us? Physicians are thrust repeatedly into situations in which the professional tasks peculiar to their status as physicians are linked to the existential tasks they share with all persons, maintaining a sense of meaning, security and connectedness in the face of mortality and finitude. It is no wonder, perhaps, that we resort so often to our increasingly sophisticated biotechnical means rather than paying real attention to the care of the dying as one of the core purposes of medicine. It was little enough if it would distract them from all the knowledge they could not evade. Little enough, but wasteful and futile, and it happens all the time. John Williams was surprised that many people found his novel very sad. I don't think it is sad. It seems to me to be really about the power of literature to give joy to any life, however constrained by circumstance. And now I think Sam would ask John to read this passage. Can you go back, please? You're getting terribly excited, whoever's doing the slides. The love of literature, of language, of the mystery, of the mind and heart, showing themselves in in the minute, strange and unexpected combinations of letters and words, in the blackest and coldest print, the love he had hidden as if it were illicit and dangerous, he began to display, tentatively at first, then boldly and then proudly. And this describes Stoner gaining confidence as a university teacher of literature, and it is literature that enriches his thoughts about mortality. Okay, he wondered again at the easy, graceful manner in which the Roman lyricists accepted the facts of death as if the nothingness they faced were a tribute to the richness of the years they had enjoyed. And he marveled at the bitterness, the terror, the barely concealed hatred he found in some of the later Christian poets of the Latin tradition when they looked to that death which promised, however vaguely, a rich and ecstatic eternity of life, as if that life and promise were a mockery that soured the days of their living. And at this point, Sam would turn to his other guest. Uh, Next one, please. Lucretius was undoubtedly one of the Roman lyricists Stoner had in mind, and Michel de Montaigne owned this copy of Lucretius' verse essay on the nature of things, and he quotes from it more than a hundred times in his own essays. And in the margin of this, his fifth, the fifth, this 1563 edition of Lucretius' poem, he wrote, Fear of death is the cause of all our vices, 
And this seems particularly true of the vices of modern medicine, which allow doctors and other healthcare professionals to pretend that to a very great extent, death is nothing to do with them. And this leads directly both to the imposition of inappropriate and futile treatments at the end of life and to ignoring the predicament and the needs of the dying by failing to acknowledge or even to recognise them. Perhaps we should all be reading more Montaigne. And perhaps one day Sam could invite Sarah Bakewell, whose wonderful biography is subtitled A Life of Montaigne in One Question and 20 Attempts at an Answer. And the first answer is, don't worry about death. And it recounts what I think Alan would say was Montaigne's experience of a near-death experience. Sometime in 1569, he had a very serious injury. He was 36 years old, and over the previous six years, death had claimed his best friend, his father, and his younger brother. And he was thrown from his horse when another rider collided into the back of him at speed. We think motorways are dangerous. Um, And he seemed to have suffered injuries to the head and chest. And he had to be carried home a considerable distance. And once he'd recovered a degree of consciousness, he appeared to be in considerable distress struggling to breathe, clawing at his clothes, coughing or vomiting large amounts of blood. He was not expected to survive. And it was at that time, contemplated in retrospect, that he made his surprising discovery. As Sarah Bakewell writes, he could enjoy delightful floating sensations, even while his body seemed to be convulsed, thrashing around in what looked to others like torment. And Montaigne's comforting testimony suggests that the body and mind become to a degree disconnected when death is imminent. And like Montaigne, those who appear to be distressed may in fact be experiencing his delightful floating sensations. After he recovered, Montaigne himself wrote, If you don't know how to die, don't worry. Nature will tell you what to do on the spot fully and adequately. She will do this job perfectly for you. Don't bother your head about it. (coughs) And it seems, like many of the people Alan talked about, that Montaigne never worried about death again. And perhaps we shouldn't all be quite so certain that death is going to be agonizing and distressing when we can never actually know. And perhaps we need to do more to pass on Montaigne's message to those facing death today. And of course, at this point, Sam would open the discussion to the audience, but he's not going to do that quite yet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Rob? I I guess I should declare a couple of things up front. First was that, that, uh, because I'm a palliative care doctor, so I look after dying people is my day job, it's my business, as it were. Um, and I started, I started life as a respiratory physiologist, in fact, an intensive care physician. Um, and so I've experienced the two types of intensive care that you can provide people with. Uh, intensive care with toys, which is what I was doing as a respiratory physiologist, or intensive care with wisdom, which is what I think palliative care is. Because I think that there's, there's this dissonance uh, that, that is written into the system. It's almost airbrushing out for us the idea that people um, die because they die, but rather that they die because doctors stop treating them. And that's 
become more and more my experience when I was working as a young ITU doctor. Um, the quality of life, the type of life that people left the unit with sometimes was, was very regrettable. Um, but nevertheless, we strived. And we should strive and we need to strive, but, but there's much more to it than that. And so in moving into palliative care, um, I was trying to consider what it is that we really did and what we do. And I think it's helping people to engage suffering and I think it's helping people to deal with uncertainty. I think control is one of the great fallacies of the modern age. And so it's having some kind of locus of control within that. And essentially, looking after individuals as they come towards the end of their life, our task, it seems to me, is to help them to complete that life. So I'm very much in favour of living till you die. I'm very much in favour of talking about um, what it is that brings that life to a meaningful conclusion. Because death is a social event, it's, it happens biologically, but it is a social event. Pegwi uh, said that uh, people die from a life. Uh, and that's for sure. Um, and the concern that I've got is, is to make sure that whatever we provide as clinicians does not get in the way of and impede that process. And so all the equations about cost and benefit, um, do we buy time, do we buy quality, all those kinds of rather trivial phrases and statements we come out with has to be located in that life before us. And, and we've been using the word patient earlier on. Of course, patient comes from Latin patio, which is a transliteration from the Greek pasco, which is the word that means suffering to undergo, have done to, to carry a burden. It's one of these monster words that can be translated in all sorts of different ways. Compassion, empathy, pathology even come from those kinds of terms. So at the heart of it, for, for me, the task, the challenge, is to create with somebody as much decision space so that the disease, the symptoms, the practical sides, the physical elements of suffering are out of the way as far as one can possibly do that in order that they can then start to face the questions and deal with the what was referred to earlier on uh, this weekend as their, as their unfinished business, what we might call their goodbyes, sorries and thank yous. And I think that one of the other things that, that I've certainly discovered, I think, is that what appears to be going on with somebody um, is often very, very distant from what is really going on inside them. This idea that you don't know somebody until you get inside their skin and walk about a bit has got a lot of truth to it. And I suppose the most practical example of that was, was when my dad was uh, having an episode of, of delirium um, as part of his dementia and ultimately um, some years later his death. Um, but he was very agitated in the bed. His legs were going up and down. My mother was sitting by the bedside and wringing her hand and saying, oh my God, I just can't bear all this suffering. Why can't we just bring an end to this and all that kind of stuff. And... and um, so I just leaned across to Dad. His, his command of language is pretty limited uh, um, at times. But I just said, Dad, Mum's saying that you're suffering. 
And he said, don't give me that bollocks. He said, I'm trying to climb this hill. Can't you see? <laughs> he, was, he was in a different reality. And so the task was to get inside that reality with him and to walk about a bit. So we had a conversation about how the path was going and I suggested he might like to... I said, I'm getting exhausted and Mum's absolutely distraught with all the effort you're putting into this, Dad. Why don't you just sit down for a moment and we can just calm down and have a bit of a rest? And, of course, his whole body went calm and he settled down and then subsequently he went to sleep. One of the interesting things about him during his dementia was that he, in the daytime, when you and I think things happen... Um, that he was inaccessible. Uh, he, he, you, you knew he was at home, but he didn't really answer the door very much. Um, uh, but at night time, um, a whole life opened to him. So he used to go riding, um, he, he used to go swimming, he used to play rugby, um, he would go hunting, and he would give you long stories at two in the morning of what was going on. And again, the bed would be rocking and, and he'd, be, he'd be going, yee-haw, and jumping around the bed because he was in another reality. And I give those two examples really to say what we see from the outside is not necessarily what is going on inside. And that's a very difficult thing for us to cope with in managing uh, the uncertainty of death and dying. And I'll stop at that point. Oh, yes. <coughs> right. Can I stay here or should I go? Wherever you like. Oh, I'll stay here. So, as you all know, I'm a social science person, but I've spent a life in medicine. Funnily enough, because... I've chosen to examine the experience of dying uh, from every angle that I can and uh, and I started the first half of that trajectory by talking with with people who are dying and one of the things that became obvious very soon was a couple of things that Rob alluded to, which is the outside view of dying and the inside view of dying is often and mostly very different. And the second thing that I can say to you after 30 years of doing this work is that the bad things stick out in observers' minds more than the good things. So when I first started interviewing people with, six, with less than six months to live in a in an regional oncology unit in Australia, I would interview these people for a couple of hours. And I interviewed a hundred of them, actually. That was my first experience. And about 80 of them, at one time or another, would start to cry. And then we would cry together. But that took two minutes. 
usually. And then if I was to do the American time motion thing, I would say that we probably, with that same group, laughed about 10 minutes. And then we probably had about 10 minutes of existential discussion, which was almost academic. It didn't matter what their backgrounds were. And then the rest was banality. Gardens, dogs, erections, breakfast. Sometimes donkeys. <laughs> if I could find a fellow soul traveller, it was sometimes donkeys, yeah. And this, this, I remember being visited by actually some oncology registrars and saying, how are you holding up to this? And I said, I'm holding up to it pretty well because I think my experience is not your experience. Because people come to their oncologists and they come to their doctors with problems and with agendas. And the advantages of being a social science person in the world of medicine is that you're irrelevant and largely meaningless. And people, therefore, tell you anything, whatever they like. And it's a good place to be. So I've spent my life trying to bring balance and context to the understanding of dying. If I was to say one single thing that changed in the dying person's life, particularly if they're dying of an illness, it would be that they watch more television than they ever have. Now, you try getting that published in Lancet. <laughs> it was a stage in my career where I was doing mass teaching for a long time. So at La Trobe University in Australia, we had 1,000 students in first-year sociology. Now, there was no building that could cope with them, so we would stick them in a the lecture theatre of 300 at a time, and we'd do it four times. This was a routine thing, and I did this for years um, until I fled that part of the world. And I met a young lecturer who was very, very keen. He was very dedicated, he loved students, he loved teaching. He did all the right things, he was an entertaining, clever young man. But I saw him one day in a staff room and he said, you know, I, I love teaching, but I get complaints. The students complain about me. I said, really? You're such a flamboyant character, you, you're, you, you love this stuff and you think out your teaching very carefully, you do a lot of preparation, I've seen you in action, you're terrific. He said, no, 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 I've had three complaints, official complaints against me already this year. And I get a whole bunch of other people um, who have problems with what I'm saying or what I'm doing. And I said, look, don't worry about it, it's pretty normal. So you've got 300 students, I've got 300 students. So the worldwide prevalence of psychotic disorder or schizophrenia is 1%. <laughs> Early onset is 18 to 25. So you've got three psychotics in that room, at least. <laughs> then you've got the affective disorders. Um, the, these are people particularly uh, who have uh, mood problems. There's probably at least 30 of those in your room. And then there's the sociopathic disorders. Now, depending on the prevalence studies you read, that's between 5 and 10. So you've probably got 15 to 30 psychopaths there. <laughs> that's not counting 
the kind of proportion of snotty-nosed middle-class children for whom the word no is like a poison dart. <laughs> so you've probably got about 50 people for whom, even if you were Jesus Christ, they would complain about your teaching. But what you're not remembering is the 250 who are really good kids, who are actually there and interested in what you've got to say, and who are appreciative, and who are really enjoying your stuff. It's the 50 bastards on your back that you remember. And in medicine, the tendency to remember the 50 bastards is overwhelming. And it's really important to understand that in the matter of con the confrontation with mortality, for most people, it's an extraordinary, rich, even beautiful, surprisingly happy time. And that's often a counterintuitive idea, but I found it that that doesn't make it less true. <clears throat> We have the house lights up, um, please. I think the three of you would accept, though, that medicine has to do one. I, I hope we're not. I imagine we'd struggle to challenge the premise that there are some things we have to do yep, to counter disease, to counter our weathering. The, the difficulty, or a difficulty, is where that tipping point rises, where we can, because we can all sit here comfortably and say, this is insane, we're doing futile things to people who are dying, etc., etc. It's how one makes that judgment. And all the time we can identify people and you know, other clinicians usually and say, well, I'd never have done that. Um, yet we all are sort of somehow complicit in this, aren't we? As practitioners, as the public, as actual patients, potential patients. How, does, how do we get better at intervening yet also tempering that? Do you want to start? <laughs> um, I'm reading Katie Butler, Knocking at Heaven's Door. Have you read that one? She, she wrote a, a, a fantastic article in The New Yorker about the death of her parents um, and how her, her, her father had a bad stroke, lost most of his language. They were both academics, I think. And, he, um, and then he got a hernia. And he had to have the hernia repaired. And the surgeon said he couldn't have the hernia repaired unless he had a pacemaker fitted. <laughs> And she describes beautifully how her parents were having these discussions about how much suffering they were prepared to trade for more time with each other, but they were unaware that that was what they were talking about. Because basically the, the, the pacemaker then kept him alive for eight years beyond what was in any way could be described as tolerable. So it's the way you, we all slide into these decisions and, and the way we're never really honest. I don't think it's very hard to be honest. Uh, you know, when you prescribe a drug, you're supposed to benefits and harms. Not that we do that very well either, but we're supposed to do benefits and harms. And when you get consent for an operation, you're supposed to do benefits and risks. But when you're doing a sort of upping a, a, any sort of softer intervention... We, we don't do sort of future projections, and, and it's very hard to do it. 
But my goodness, we need to get better at it somehow. And it's, it demands an honesty, doesn't mm. it? Mm. That's what you're saying, even honesty about the, the limits and the, the doubts. I mean, building on what I was saying earlier on about the task is to help someone complete a life and see them in, in their own setting and the, the meaning and context that that brings, then that d does change the dialogue fundamentally. So I would be really interested to know how many oncologists, when they're offering the latest poison with its median survival gain of 30% of 12 and a half weeks, have broken the news that there will be at least 12 weeks cost in terms of hospitalization, outpatient appointments, feeling like death warmed up anyway, and you've only got a one in three chance of getting that, those 12 weeks back. And, and, and the aggregate benefit in terms of time is zero because you've already spent the 12 weeks and they were 12 weeks when you would have been better anyway. And, and you know, one of the interesting things for me is asking a person who's coming to outpatients, how much does a half an hour with the doctor cost you in terms of time and energy? And on average, it costs three days. It's a day getting wound up. It's getting up at the crack of dawn because the ambulance comes three hours before you need to be there. You get there and there's a delay. Then you have to wait you don't get home till 8 o'clock in the evening. And then if you're lucky, it's going to take you only a day to recover. That's before you've had the drug. And that's yeah. before you've been poisoned. Um, <coughs> so, so, so the equations that we, we, we go through with people are, are just daft because we don't locate them in the setting and in the life that, that's yeah. being led. Now, it may well be that, that someone will go put up with anything in order to make the date of the graduation or the yeah. this or the that, or the other. Hmm. And, and there are occasions equally where I've advocated for what in effect is futile chemotherapy in the eyes of medicine, because the meaning of the chemotherapy for the young woman demonstrating that she's investing everything in the additional time that's necessary or demanded by the family actually makes the futility not futile at all. And if an oncologist had... Um advocated, and wouldn't have called it chemotherapy, of course, we'd have called it poison, if an oncologist would have advocated in the same way, yeah. would, have that been, would that have been advocacy or would that have been folly? Well, it, it depends. On the oncologist? Yes. <coughs> or, the, or, the, or the tone of the advocacy, I imagine? No, I think, it, I, I think it's really sitting down and, and, and actually taking quite a lot of time How meaningfully it was with, with, with the process of consent. Because yep. let's not forget, consent's about refusal. Mm. You, I, consent's not about consent, because I wouldn't offer somebody something unless I thought it was in their best interest. So actually consent, the con process of consent, is giving the space for someone to say no. If you understand that, that yes. changes the equation again. And I'm going to come back to you on this one, if that's right, and bring the audience in. So lots of points. One down at the bottom here. Thank you. I, I think the problem is that we're always dealing with uncertainty. And Rob is right that, on average, 12 weeks chemotherapy will give you 12 weeks extra. But 12 weeks of chemotherapy for some patients will give them 12 years. And 12 years of chemotherapy may <coughs> give them 12 hours. The problem is always that you don't know which patient is which. 
Any of you? On well, that? which is why it becomes so important to find out how you know what the what what the residual life ambitions are. Whether whether there is a there's that wonderful Samuel Beckett thing about you know most people most of the time want to live forever, but some people some of the time and a few people a little of the time don't, uh, or all the time. No, a few people all the time don't. So it, it, and we're very bad at asking those sorts of questions. We have a sort of general approach that that more is better. But the point there is almost even if you asked it, even if you knew what someone's value set was, <clears throat> the uncertainty often, not always, but often remains. And Henry Marsh was talking about this yesterday, wasn't he? The uncertainty then leaves one in a position, particularly when charged with a responsibility, as understood in a certain way, fearful. And therefore the default, the default response is act, intervene, in, you know, do something almost spinal to prolong, attempt to prolong life. But wasn't it interesting that, that uh, what I took from Henry's talk yesterday was that, that youth was that fear set with responsibility and, and maturity oh. was that you were willing to give yes. the anxiety to the person that you were supposed to be looking after. In other words, you were entering into a proper relationship, which is that you are sharing the angst, you're sharing the concern and bringing one set of expertise that requires the other set of expertise to come out with a matrix that all things considered is probably going to be okay in terms of taking a risk so for example if if you're looking at an intervention then saying okay so what or, or should i travel on holiday should i go on holiday in three weeks time doc um well you know the questions to be asked are not what's your prognosis but how comfortable do you feel with the uncertainty that if you go on holiday, you might end up in hospital in France or Tunisia or whatever, and it's going to be difficult to get you back? How important does the, hospital, does, does the journey mean in the face of those kinds of issues? That being an extreme contraction of a, an extreme example, but nevertheless a real one. Alan, could you comment on that a bit? Because it's, to do all of this, so there's all the kind of moral calculus, there's the... Where's and why's on prognosis, all the treatment work. But it always comes down to the language that's used, how these huge issues are communicated in some bilateral way. Now, you were talking about the oncology registrars asking you how you were getting on with mm. those interviews. Mm. Have you done any work sitting in on these sorts of consultations? No. Yeah. Right. I mean, my work is primarily... <coughs> My work has primarily been about uh, trying to understand what the dying experience is from the point of view of the person at the centre of it. Mm -hmm. If you look at the literature from 30 years ago, the bulk of the literature is caregivers' views. So that's GPs' views, it's consultants' views, it's nursing's views, it's chaplains' views, it's family views of what it's like living with a life-limiting illness. So the actual material... Um, that we have to get, in, to get an insider's view is very modest. That's why I've spent most of my life trying to repair that bit. Um, but I always think about these kinds of things as that... I mean, the, in the interesting thing about um, your comment is that these are usually things from large data sets. So you've got outliers and you've got you know, medium times of survival and so forth because of your particular interventions. But I don't think there's any substitute, irrespective of occupational background, 
for most people, where you actually sit this down and you say, you know, let, let me tell you what prognosis is all about and how we know what we know and why we know what we don't know. And out of that discussion, it seems to me, um, comes a kind of a, a joint decision-making, really. Um, that's, that's what I think normally happens in just about every other area of medicine and social care, for that matter. And it's the idea that, that um, medicine moves to this kind of partnership model, which is, I think, the most difficult and the most controversial often. Say that's the pattern for for most uh, of medicine, but we do have a, an intrinsic donkey um, that that favours benefit over harm, because we are we are educated to be interventionist, and and it's a big donkey. Are yeah, the but people having the conversations? Should it be the doctors who are favouring intervention in these? Con I mean, just. You know, go with me on the imagination on this. So, must it be the doctors? In fact, ought we better to have some of these conversations? In fact, with clinical psychologists, palliative care, nursing colleagues, who will bring completely different paradigms and value sets to that encounter and care, and indeed means of communicating benefits and risk, where our inbuilt bias due to some of the fear. And forgive me, if specialists would sometimes involve family doctors who yes. may have known them yeah, for yeah, yeah, yeah. 30 years, that would help. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a key, that's a key issue, as, as who is the professional is best placed. Yeah. And, and I think the default ought to be primary care, whether that's the GP or a community yes. nurse or, or matri the person who has got that narrative knowledge. I mean, and I agree with that to a degree, and of course, you know, we're all going to sort of end up retreating to our stereotypes here, <laughs> but similarly, it's not infrequently the case where I will ring a patient's GP and say, look, I really, what do you think the right thing to do here is? Or we've had a conversation. Yeah, but you're the Melvin Bragg of medicine. <laughs> you know, you, you're, not, you're not normal, man. I know that. <laughs> you're certainly not a normal oncologist. I, just, I'm, just I'm, understand I'm reminded that. of my lack of normality every morning at the breakfast table, believe me. But um, the, 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 the... What's that? Not being normal? No, I'm not normal. I'm not, and I'm not the only normal one. I think it's, it's more, in fact, that the issue is... In fact, we often do this, don't we, where we say the primary care givers should be doing it, palliative care should be doing it, oncology shouldn't be doing it. Whereas, in fact, it doesn't tend to fall, I think, within the remits of specialties so much as certain types that we will identify, and you'll see this all the time, when you go, ah, they were brilliant, that junior doctor really got to grips with that individual, or that staff mm -hmm. nurse yeah, did. And right. it's how you harness, or what it is that those types have, I yeah. think, because we're too easy, I mean, the Twitter feed's saying this already, I can see it, GPs, hospital doctors, it isn't those, those boundaries, I think, are artifactual. It's the individuals that somehow engage meaningfully, authentically, empathically in those conversations. I wonder, I don't know. Next point. But who, whoever bothers to find out, that just, that's it. That yes, whoever it is, yes. Who, who bothers to find out who the important person is? Yes, that's the key. yes. At the back. It's just, a, I think there's another dimension which makes it even more complex, and that's that, um, for example, putting someone on bypass and doing cardiac surgery. Um, I went to watch a, a woman have a, her aortic root replaced. She had Marfan syndrome, and she was 23 weeks pregnant. 
and watching the cardiac surgeons, you know, stop her heart, put her on bypass, then start her heart again when they'd replaced her aortic root. And so, but that was only possible for times in the past where somebody totally crazy thought that that was a good idea. Mm. And patients said that they would go for that. Mm. So those discussions which must have taken place years ago, which we would now, I'm sure all of us in the room think, oh my goodness, what kind of consent went on there, mm. led to something which now we would all probably be in support of. So there's that other context of um, medical advance and time. So progress. Um, progress through doing things we mightn't have done. Yeah? Yeah, and, and patients going through things that for the individual probably wasn't the right thing. Um, and, and similarly, we have situations where for the individual it may not be the right thing, but for the population it may be the right thing. So um, again, that puts a different complexity onto it. Do you talk about that a bit? Where we are with where we are with what we can do now? So I mean, every day I can prescribe a drug that wouldn't have been available even ten years ago, and there are some therapeutic benefits attached to it. Four years ago, the Tory government put in the Cancer Drugs Fund, which completely subverted nice and any kind of utilitarian decision making. But at my fingertips now, a few clicks on a computer, I've got access to phenomenally costly drugs that do have a, albeit small visible benefit and there's a clamor for it in a way that me withholding those would be seen as you know questionably bolum compliant care how do we how do we balance that real progress at small levels with tempering things i'm i'm going to default back to the conversation with the person in front of us um having done cardiothoracic surgery as it happens um, in the days with the likes of Donald English who did the first heart transplant and it was very interesting when we were drinking when we were on call because that's what you did in those days um, it, it, the conversations that would take place would often be we, we are honest, we don't talk about the good old times we talk about the bad old times and they did talk about the times where mortality from heart surgery was 90% and, and they were doing the kinds of things that um, uh, are now routine. But of course they were, they were dealing with a group of people for whom the, the loss of a future life was a very real thing. And much as cardiopulmonary resuscitation was there for the heart that was considered too young to die. What's happened is that this has now bled into nobody can have a heart that is too old to be kept going. Um, and we have to dance some dance of denial around um, appearing to do something. So there's something about the wisdom that pro with progress, just because you've got a can doesn't mean you've got, that becomes an ought. I mean, that's just such, that's O-level philosophy mm. at one level. And I think that, that that's the great difficulty. There's, it's perfectly fine to keep on looking at the cans, but then how you apply the oughts to that then becomes much more difficult. And, and fundamentally, all we can do is deal with the person before us and what that means for them, much as we heard earlier on this morning about ethics. Ethics is messy, it's practical, it's complex, and there is no such thing necessarily as a right answer. But there are parameters within which we can operate in relationship mutually to a benefit which is meaningful. 
Okay, I'm going to just bring in a few more points, if that's all right. So up there, and then we'll, we'll pick up the pace a bit. A comment on uncertainty. Um, just a reflection on Alan's 50 bastards, and I think we need to just make sure that we know what they're saying, because there may be something in them. We mustn't dismiss them all. Um, but my main point is about the older I've got, the less certain I've become about everything. And that now I've stopped seeing patients. I've had to take extreme measures to cure myself of my addiction of seeing patients. Um, I um, uh, think I might well be a better doctor now than I've ever been in the past. Um, it's all to do with this uncertainty process. And my final bit then is about Montaigne. So I hope if I've got this wrong, Iona will put me right on it. I was first attracted to Montaigne by Sarah Blackwell's book and her take on what I think was Pyrrhonic skepticism, which I didn't, had never heard of at that point. And I think it was Socrates who said, um, there's only one thing I know, and that is that I know nothing. And Montaigne qualified that by saying, and I'm not even certain of that. And that's a byword for me. That was Thank you. A uh, question down the bottom here. I just thought it was um, interesting what you were saying about consent forms and how we're giving people the option to say no and how that contrasts with um, treatment escalation plans, not for resuscitation, where we're quite often very careful to only have that conversation with people who we would really like to not resuscitate. For all, for all we know, we ought to have it with other people. And, and the, contrast, the contrast between those two conversations of giving people a chance to opt out of treatment and trying to talk people out of treatment um, and how we negotiate those two different situations. Well, isn't it interesting that an intervention that has a 25% chance of causing, this is jumping up and down on somebody's chest, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, 25% chance of major organ puncture, um, something like a 15% chance of death as a result of the intervention itself, um, no surgeon in their right mind would even consider that in somebody who could possibly respond to a cardiopulmonary resuscitation. No surgeon <coughs> would consider that unless they'd gone through in great detail the reality of the potential harms of that intervention. And I think you're completely right that the group with whom we should be having conversations about cardiopulmonary resuscitation are precisely those for whom there is a plausible likelihood, one, that they're going to have a cardiorespiratory arrest on the episode of care they're in, but two, that they've got a fighting chance of responding to an attempted resuscitation and what kind of life would that lead to? This was the issue with Tony Nicholson, for example. We may have to, move, just going to move on, because CPR will easily take us till seven, to seven o'clock, but if you go I, I, Well, I just wanted to, <coughs> you know, this elephant in the room about yeah. ageism. Mm, yes. Because I think that there is so much complete crap talked about mm. ageism in medicine. And to treat a 90-year-old differently from a 23-year-old, and the trouble is all the progress for 23-year-olds seeps yeah. into 90-year-olds because otherwise it's ageism. Mm. It is not appropriate to treat different age groups the same because their physiology mm. is completely yeah. different. And, and it's another thing we need to be honest mm. about. Is it and just premised on physiology, though, or is there a sense 
are also a recognition that oughtn't to be that elusive of the limits of life and the fact that as you age, you are likelier to be approaching the end of your life. Yeah, I, well, I, I <coughs> do think there are very great differences in physiology, mm. you know, uh, and in healing and in immunology mm. and all those other things. But also, you know, old people are not stupid. Mm. They know their prognosis is limit, more limited than a 23-year-old, mostly. Alan, I just wondered if you could come in on the point about... Um, so, you know, CPR is often the, the, the scenario that we're presented with. But if you're saying, in fact, <clears throat> that the suffering that we perceive in someone in the last days, weeks, months of life is different to the suffering they're experiencing, we're saying there's a separation there, then what about, in fact, what we're doing with palliative care, where our attention is focusing there on ameliorating a suffering that may not be quite what we're documenting it as. Look, I think you've got to unpack some of this. I mean, if we're talking about breathing difficulties, for example, or some intractable pain, that's a suffering that I think both parties agree needs addressing. But I mean, the, re the reality is, is that most of dying, and it's hard to put a figure on it, but maybe 90%, if you like, is about the social, the psychological and spiritual. That's, that's the reality of dying here. Uh, dying is not an ingrown toenail. Right? It's ontologically a different thing. Yes, there's a medical and physical dimension, otherwise you know, we wouldn't be talking about some of this stuff. Palliative medicine, oncology, neurology, if we're talking about the last speaker. We're dealing with the disease process, but don't think for a moment that this is the majority, even of the identity of the people having this journey. That's not what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. David Livingstone, was a classic example, was grabbed by a lion, tossed in the air, then pounced on, and then they started, the tiger started ripping into him. So he's native, as in those days. Baggage carriers picked up their rifles and shot into the tiger and eventually killed it. When David Livingstone managed to recover and have a bit of a drink of water and catch his breath, they asked him, how was it? Are you, are you all right? And he said... You know, that was really great. <laughs> you can read the account. He felt terrific. <laughs> he was particularly interested in the teeth <laughs> of the tiger. Now, it sounds funny, but you'll be surprised again and again and again, including your own account of, um, of how the inside experience of suffering, and that looks terrible from an outsider's mm. point of view. Mm. But if you're just looking at the psychological and social and spiritual dimensions, these are complex dimensions. They are not what you would think. You need to, and it's very difficult, I admit, it's very difficult to separate your view and, and their view. Mm. There are some overlapping areas. There are some areas that don't overlap but that are made to overlap. For example, where a dying person is a caregiver, feels they have to care for their caregiver, and tells the caregiver things that are pertinent to that relationship, which may or may not be true to them, but that's the politics of relationships. We all do it. So it's a complex mix. And in the matter of the burden of, of interventions around suffering and whether or not how much responsibility we need to do downstream, remember that we are talking downstream. There is a cultural responsibility. And it's very difficult to remember that. But it's a bit like the bees talk and the talk about the whales. We are in a situation 
epidemiologically, in terms of medical history, where we are only just starting to remember that we have to take responsibility for our health and our death and dying, instead of running off to the doctor. It's called medical rescue syndrome. It's a largely an American thing, but it's become worldwide now. Everybody thinks, whether you're into assisted dying or you're into palliative care or whether you're into aged care, that at the end of the day, the doctor will save us, including take us out. He will have or she will have the role. We have to wean ourselves off that. That's a big task. We've managed to start doing it in other areas. It's called health promotion, you know, where you take some responsibility for not eating fish and chips, battered fish and chips, 10 days of the week, you, where you might have a hamburger from time to time, that you should wear your seatbelt and your condom and your helmet, not all together, but some people... Are... <laughs> some people like to do that. And, you know, the death-dying, caregiving, ageing, loss equivalents of that, we're only just beginning to touch on. But they are crucial to this conversation, even though they often appear invisible in our dialogues. No, completely. Thank you. I I, I want to challenge Alan a little bit on that, because I, I agree entirely about weaning off doctors from areas in which they have no expertise. But the idea that the antidote to medicalization is health promotion and pushing the responsibility back onto onto the people who are sick feels to me very wrong, and particularly when 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 we're not issued... As a society, we make no attempt to deal with issues of social justice, which we know power health much more than anything to do with, uh, with wearing your seatbelt or your condom or even smoking your cigarettes. So, 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 so I'm uncomfortable with that. I would agree with you if you were right. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't say that. Where's Ray Tallis? So, so I've got two what, Ray Tallises in the room. <laughs> I'm talking about the idea that end-of-life care, like health care, is everybody's responsibility. We all need to play a role. That's At the moment, the culture is... It's mainly all you guys. I'm absolutely with you there. It's the seatbelts and the condoms and the um, fish and chips. I mean, let's hear it for fish and chips. Um, so it's that bit, I'm wor- that, uh, that bit I'm worried about. Mm. No, okay. I can only mention right, pricing. Might, well, let's talk about it. Another point. Uh, two more points. We've got one at the top, just there. Is anyone holding the microphone? Yep. Thank you. Are you on mine? Um, yeah, slight playing, playing devil's advocate here. It feels like... Um, when there's something that can be done to a knee or a heart or a head, then what you get is a really good technician. And it seems like when you get towards the end of life, that's when, as a patient, you suddenly start to be treated holistically because it's not much more that the technicians can do. And it's only at that point that you get the honesty um, and and the engagement of you as somebody as an expert in your own life and what you want. So you're making the comment that that's how it feels, is that's what feels the reality feels like. Yeah, but it's quite hard to achieve that active partnership with clinicians sometimes. And you're suggesting that maybe even the, the need or whatever needs holistic... Um, I, that everybody needs yeah, a holistic Okay. I'll move on. There's another comment down the bottom here. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fellow poisoner, as you all know well, Sam. And um, I, I'm feeling quite defensive. And um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, just wanted to highlight or... Note that point you made, Sam, about the, the clamour 
I, I really don't think that um, it, it's, an, it's the oncology world's fault, if you like, that people are <coughs> receiving drugs that cost a lot and do very little. Uh, I think uh, that that societal clamour to get into our clinics, to have what's available, that we feel, as you rightly say, obliged to, to give with enormous pressure is, is by far the bigger issue. Do you want to say something on that, Rob? Well, I, I think that's totally fair, um, in, in that there is a dance of denial. And, um, you know, it does take two to dance. So we don't necessarily need to agree, um, but society certainly needs to grow up on this one, it seems to me. And then it, this has to be a public debate. And, and in that sense, the, it, it's an issue for all of us is completely right in, in getting the balance and proportionality and actually working out you know, the real complexity for that individual of, of what are the genuine benefits and harms and risks and hazards that, that, that are relevant to them. And, and sometimes, I have no doubt you've experienced this many times, Iona, is, is that um, sometimes the decisions people come to are really interesting and very surprising when you've laid the whole story out in front of them and, and, and um, benefit, you, you know, and the decisions they come to. One, and one of the paradoxes for us at the moment in palliative care is that all the early in studies of early interventions of palliative care, and the classic, the original one was the, was the small cell lung cancer study in the States, early involvement of palliative care doesn't just mean that people feel better, their quality of life improves, but guys, they lived longer. <laughs> there was actually a, a survival benefit, and I'm going to use the word survival advisedly, there was a survival benefit by getting us involved earlier in, in the, in the team dynamics. It really worried me, though, when that's what the case was resting on. Yes. Because I thought, well, this is now we're in some kind of Alice in Wonderland conversation yes. here about get us in early, we can make you live longer. The, the other... <coughs> I mean, the, but but, but <laughs> the point, I'm just demonstrating hmm. the complexity of the problem. The clamour's interesting, though, because there's a huge ambivalence out there, out here, in here, all of us, worrying about the end-of-life Liverpool care pathway, yeah. um, asking for um, more control over time of, of death, assisted suicide, yeah. being really worried about CPR being withheld, being really worried about futile attempts at CPR, um, the Cancer Drugs Fund. And so all that ambivalence, and John Humphrey states it very nicely yeah. most mornings, it's very hard to then work out what actual set of values society want to inhabit. And we haven't even got to social justice yet in the view and the shape of medicine that we aspire to. And it's, you know, it materialises too late at the bedside, at the couch, on the ward. Yeah, OECD countries, 80% of the world's healthcare resources, 20% of the year, uh, the, of the, um, of the, well, no, it's t less than 10% of the world's disability life adjusted years. So it's, it's, it, it's completely disproportionate. There's no justice <coughs> in the... We, we have, we're going to leave, this will lead... Did I hear something? No, sorry. Did I hear something I should have heard? No. Oh dear. Um, right. We, we're going to have to move on to the next session, which will lead on really well for this. I want to thank our panel enormously. Rob George, Iona Heath, Alan Kelleher. <clears throat> Thank you.